When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And with that, a good morning to the great guru of history. Good morning, Zeb. Dr. History. How you doing? Good. Good, good. Sun shining. Looks like it's going to be a nice week today. It's a beautiful week. day in the neighborhood. It is. Do you have it any is. thank yous today? I, you know, I haven't heard from anybody this week. Oh. It's kind of unusual. Usually I hear at least from one or two. They call you old lonesome Ken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sitting there looking at my computer hoping I get an email. I'll send you one so you don't feel left out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so Zeb, we're going to head up to Alaska today. I don't want to go up there. Well, it's cold. It is, and we'll talk a little about that cold. Okay. So, so this happened in 1861. Okay, okay. about the year you were born. About right about there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, just after you were born. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1861, America stretched a telegraph wire from the East Coast, from the Atlantic States to California. So now the nation was eager to be connected to Europe. Now, unfortunately, their first attempt to lay a telegraph wire across the Atlantic Ocean had failed. So they tried it, but it, uh, whatever reason, it didn't work. But the notion of laying wire across that big body of water uh, was feeling more and more far-fetched to what, the engineers. What are you talking about wire? I mean, what, the, the, the cable, how big the telegraph, of a cable was it? You know, I've only seen pictures, but it looks like it's about as big as your arm. Just a big, thick, maybe a foot, I, I don't know. And so what they tried to do and whatever lay across they, the ocean, it failed, right? Yeah, whatever they tried initially did not work. So they started turning uh, to look at the Pacific Ocean, which was less than 60 miles wide uh, in the Bering Strait from what is now Alaska over to Siberia. Uh So then they figured, okay, well, we can stretch a wire across that part of the ocean over to Siberia and then overland to Europe. Because they know they could uh, have a wire that was stretched, well, obviously went all across the United States from east to west. So in August of 1865, a guy named Major Robert Kennicott stepped off a ship at the mouth of the Yukon River. He was only 30 years old, kind of a frail guy. Uh, He wore a Western Union Telegraph Company expedition uniform. Um, He, kind of unusual, he wore Indian moccasins on his feet with this uniform. Now, Kennecott was uh, kind of a nervous guy. He was rushing back and forth while his supplies were unloaded onto the beach, and uh, he'd purchased a lot of stuff in San Francisco, and this all was shipped up to Alaska. What about the cable? Well, uh, not yet. They're, not, they're just getting ready for that. 
Okay, so uh, but he was kind of a, a suspicious, paranoid kind of guy. He was worried that his crew was cheating him. Uh, did they want the mission to fail? Were his men out to kill him? Uh, he had all these thoughts going through his mind. It so, sounds like he was living life in the rear view mirror. Lane. Yeah. yeah. But uh, before he set out, the Western Union Telegraph Company had contracted with Russia to lay wire in Russian America, which is now Alaska. It was considered yeah. Russian yeah. America. And the Russians the other day, they want it back. The, the, yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, in addition, the Canadian government had granted permission to lay American telegraph wire in Western Canada. Hmm. So, once all the paperwork was signed, the pressure was on to complete the line quickly. Western Union knew it was only a matter of time before another company would succeed with the transatlantic line. So, they were trying to hurry and get this done. Now, this Robert Kennecott was quickly hired as the chief of the company's Russian-American division. That's what they called it. So the goal, again, was to get it from America uh, through what is now Alaska, uh, across the Bering Strait to Russia. And then? And then over to Europe. And then, i got to ask this question. Okay. Have you ever thought, while you were doing this uh, study on this program, how and how big those cable rolls were? Oh, you know, again, I've seen pictures of them on ships uh, where they're unrolling it out into the ocean. And What would one cable roll be like? Uh, I don't know. Mile? Two miles? Oh, my goodness. Maybe. I don't know. I wonder what the company name was that made and manufactured that cable. And there again, I, I don't know, because actually, you'll see, we didn't even get that far. Really? Yeah. So this Robert Kennecott was selected because he was the only United States citizen known to have traveled the Yukon River. He actually had canoed across western Canada, uh, including a few hundred miles of the Yukon River. He had also spent a full winter in cold, remote Fort Yukon. So these credentials were enough for Western Union to figure he was the man for the job. So in San Francisco, Western Union hired over 40 men to accompany Kennecott and handle the telegraph work. Some were truly kind of lazy, but Kennecott distrusted all of them. He didn't trust any of them. He was sure that his second-in-command was slowing things down to make him look bad to the company. So the expedition scientific corps was solely Kennecott's idea. As head of that group, he chose six scientists. Now, that may sound a little strange, to ask for six scientists, yeah. but they were set to explore uh, when and where they chose, taking notes, collecting samples, while he stayed near the ship. i got to ask you a dumb question. Okay. Now, they put a lot of the cable underwater. Right. But did they also have to trench and bury the cable we'll, on... We'll get to that. I think I'll... I knew you were going to say that. I'll, I'll, I'll get that to you. So anyway, all the supplies, the provisions, and belongings, they're on the beach, and the crew kind of became worried. You see, Kennecott had not brought, an, brought enough food to feed an expedition of 50 men for at least a year. Oh, my god. They goodness. only had 6,000 pounds of food, and it was mostly flour. That's not good. If the men were to labor in this sub-zero weather, they needed a lot more food than that. Yeah. And they were afraid it'd be a hungry winter. They got sick of pizza. (laughs) They did. (laughs) So a Russian trading post, St. Michael, sat where the Yukon River flowed into the Bering Sea. So the expedition set up camp on the beach right there below the blockhouse, uh, which was a Russian guard structure. Kennecott sent half of the men and supplies north 
their mission was to explore the coastline up to where the Bering Strait was so narrow that you could actually see Siberia. Really? Okay, and then they were supposed to begin setting telegraph poles in the ground, so no trenching. This was going to be telegraph poles. So it went from the water to well, the poles? it was going to go from the poles into the, into the Bering Strait. Okay, because hmm. it was going to come by pole all the way across the United States, Canada. That's to, pretty heavy for those poles. Yeah. Well, at that point, it wouldn't have been the real heavy one that would have, they would have had in the in the ocean. Oh. Okay. So Kennecott led the other men up this 2,000-mile Yukon River, and they were supposed to locate the ideal telegraph right-of-way, 2,000 miles. Then they, too, were supposed to start setting telegraph poles beginning at the Canadian end of the Yukon River and working back toward the coast. Hopefully, these two lines would connect at St. Michael. Hopefully. Which was, yeah, which was the shortest route yeah. okay, across. You said that was 60 miles. Uh, yeah, across to, to Siberia. Yeah. So a little river steamboat, the Lizzie Horner, was unloaded from Kennecott's ship at St. Michael. However, there was an essential part that had been left behind. Uh-oh. Lizzie's smokestack. What's that? <laughs> the smokestack on the, on the steamboat. They forgot it? They forgot it. How do you do that? I don't know. But that missing piece had to be made from scrap metal before she could be fired up. So Lizzie's uh, proved to be kind of a fussy steamer. She broke down at the worst times. The crew moved very slowly up the Yukon River that fall. Uh, Kennecott hated the slowness, and he I said he was paranoid. He suspected his crew was tampering with the steamboat. Uh-huh. And after the Yukon River froze over, the steamboat Lizzie was useless. They left it behind. So then what did they do? Well, after the crew left, uh, after they left the boat, Kennecott needed to hire Russian-speaking Alaskan guides, all right? The Americans would now travel into the Athabascan country, where the only common language was Russian. He didn't speak Russian. So this process was really frustrating for Kennecott, because he found that while the natives were very willing to work, they wanted a whole dollar a day. A whole buck? A whole dollar. Uh, and, uh, you know, as expedition chief, Kennecott hated to spend so much money for common laborers. So all the crew that he had, they left. No, they're still with him. Oh. But he had to hire these other people uh, to help uh, because they needed sleds and dogs. Holy cow. So buying sleds and dogs was a challenge since the native mushers, again, wanted this big money. Well, Kennecott's San Francisco men uh, proved not to be very good dog drivers. <laughs> well, they'd never done it before. Well, neither of you. It'd be like me and you going out there <laughs> right. try, trying to get dogs to run in the right direction. Yeah. But uh, So he wondered how he would feed a bunch of husky dogs when he could barely feed his own men. Another dollar a day. Uh, yeah, a whole <laughs> dollar. Well, think back then, Zeb. You know, I mean, a lot of guys made a 25 cents a day. Oh, my. You know, back in those 1800s. So a dollar may have been, you know, pretty good. Anyway, it was a harsh winter. The temperature was 30 below zero. Even so, the camp managed to move up the Yukon River every few weeks. They would get a little farther. In 30 degree below. below. Oh, my goodness. So... The camp managed to move up the, 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 the Yukon. They were pleased to see that as they traveled upriver, they found more and larger trees than they had seen on the coast. So some men built some crude uh, huts, 
the sun shone for only a few hours a day, so they worked mostly by moonlight. And again, 30 below and mostly dark. And they didn't have the fancy footwear we have no, today. No, they didn't have the clothes. Oh. But the meals had been reduced to biscuits at breakfast and a dinner of salt meat with biscuits at dinner. And it was hard to keep warm on only two meals a day. I mean, oh my. when it's that cold, you've got to have calories. Yeah. You know? So here we are. This Us fat people would really be happy up there. <laughs> we won't go to that. Okay. The spring of 1866 found the group camping at the dilapidated Russian fort called Nulato. Where did they stay at night? Well, they built these crude huts. And then they would, after so far, then they'd go up the river farther and build some more crude huts. Oh, so they kept building houses? Little, little you know, like lean-tos. Is any something. of that left today? Probably not. I doubt it. But over the course of the fall and winter, they had managed to actually travel 550 miles up the Yukon River. And they had to go 2,000. Right. So on the morning of May 13th, Kennecott sat down and wrote guidelines for the expedition if he should die. Okay. Now, this note was placed where the crew was sure to find it. He then left this Nulato camp alone. He strolled along the Yukon River. The the river ice had been broken, and the snow was patchy in the forest. When Kennecott did not return for dinner, two crewmen went searching for him. They soon found his body on the bank of the river with a peaceful look on his face. One of the men believed that Kennecott's heart had just stopped. The other was sure that Kennecott had committed suicide because he'd left a note in his tent. Okay, There's no evidence to decide uh, the matter for them, and the mystery of his passing remains a mystery today. They really, really don't know what happened. Was he the one that was financing this? No, no, it was Western Union. Oh. He was just an employee, but he was, he was the head man. So anyway, Kennecott had been in Alaska less than nine months. Uh, ironically, the most time he was able to spend with any of his scientists, remember he took those six scientists? And that occurred when one of them escorted his coffin back to San Francisco. Oh, he, my goodness. So, and it took three men to fill Kennecott's shoes. There was a 20-year-old fish expert became the chief of the scientific corps. A company man pushed the Yukon River team to complete their exploration. A Another expedition man, a guide, paddled all the way up to the source of the Yukon in Canada to mark the intended route for the line. So they made it the 2,000 miles, but not with Kennecott. What do you think he did? I think, I don't know. I think he... He just walked out on the thin ice and... No, he was sitting. He, they found him. I, I think he oh. just gave up. Gave up. Just gave up. I see. But the crews worked another entire year traveling slowly and digging into frozen ground. The coastal crew, the other one, was the only Alaska team to erect telephone poles, and then only about 80 miles of it. Now, are any, are any of those poles left? I doubt it. I doubt that. I mean, this was, you know, all those years ago. Probably not. So, anyway, so then, after they'd done all that work, all that suffering and, and starving, in the summer of 1867, the Russian-American division learned that a telegraph wire had been laid across an ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. They got beat they getting got beat. getting a wire to the holy to, to all Europe. that work for nothing. Yeah, so America and Europe were connected, uh, but not by them. So the Western Union Telegraph Company immediately decided it would spend no more money money on a Bering Strait line, and the crew was fired. 
Uh, the men dropped their shovels and actually cheered for joy, wouldn't you? <laughs> After all that, I want to get out of there. Time. Uh, did they ever get their money? I, I think they did, but there was a, a second piece of news that went along pretty good too. America had purchased, purchased Alaska from Russia. Ah, remember the Seward? Yeah, yeah. and they called it Seward's Folly because uh, they got it for what? God, I can't remember. A couple of million dollars. Oh yeah, it wasn't much. Yeah. But, you know, although the dream of this Trans-Pacific Telegraph Line had failed, the expedition was actually a scientific success. The scientific corps, those six men, had collected a whole bunch of natural history information. Several expedition naturalists returned to the United States with samples and rough drafts of books. America quickly knew more about the interior of Alaska than Russia ever had. And all of this research took place because Robert Kennicott had insisted on bringing scientists along on this expedition. And he to never Alaska. lived to see any of it. He never lived to see any of the fruits of that. So, again, the, the expedition was a failure. But, you know, uh, and again, you think about, you know, the gold rush and yeah. the, the fish, the salmon uh, that Alaska provided. Uh, I mean,. Uh, Again, they call it Seward's Folly, but, uh, you know, it, it was definitely uh, probably the, one of the best purchases. And let's see, what was it, 1959, I think, when Alaska became a state. Mm-hmm. I believe it was 1959. But I'm still going to go back to the cold. I mean, I cannot imagine with the technology and the uh, increases in knowledge about what to wear, packs for your feet, uh, warmer gloves, warmer coats. They didn't have any of this, and they were working in 30 below weather. Right. Well, think of uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his ship, the Endurance, down in the south, uh, trying to get to the Antarctic. Wow. Yeah. you know, I don't know if you've heard, but the Endurance, the ship that sunk, the Shackleton ship, they yeah. have found it. They've located that really? ship down in, I think it's called Weddell's, Weddell's Bay or Weddell's Bay. They have actually found it and taken pictures of, of his ship. Oh, my. And that's another story of extreme cold, severe oh, weather. And I he never lost that. a single man. Really? They all survived, even though he didn't make it to the uh, South Pole. You had so, to be some kind of tough oh, to live that kind of a life, you know. And we've talked about you know the the gold miners going getting to the Yukon and traveling up the Chilkoot Trail and the Golden Staircase yeah. and then down the river to to the Yukon and. Uh, but for a dollar a day, I mean, people today think about that a dollar a day if you were lucky. Right, that's what I'm saying. Uh, down here in the state side, you know, a lot of it was twenty five cents a day, maybe. Wow. So, And they had all their clothing and the food and all their accessories on the ship, right? Right, which wasn't much. Yeah, I was going to say. So I'm betting that I would think that maybe some of the locals uh, maybe provided them some food, you know, because they knew how to hunt the Inuits and the, uh, the various uh, tribes in Alaska. Hopefully, maybe help them. I, but to make know. their lodging for how long a period of time? Well, what was it, a year and a half, year? No, no, I mean, but they stayed in these uh, cabins. These little huts. For how long and then moved on? Well, I, I suppose they would go maybe another 20 or 30 miles uh, and then maybe build some more. Oh, my goodness. So they were going back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. I yeah. see. Just to get the to, to uh, scout it out and then decide where to plant the poles. 
And then they had to cut down the trees for the telegraph poles. Holy moly. (laughs) And we think we've got it hard. Yeah, yeah. Holy. But Kennecott, uh, was he any relation to the Kennecott mine? I don't know that, but I I doubt it. I I don't know. I can't say that for sure. Okay. But, I mean, he died at a very young age, so not married. I don't think he was married or had family. You got to sit back and think, though, in those days, and you kind of elaborated with uh, Kennecott himself. I mean, the feeling of loneliness and uh, we can't win, there's no hope. I mean, desperation, desolation. Wow, when you're up in that cold country, there, I wouldn't want to be there. Well, and the the forty men that were working with him, you know, they'd left yeah. family and friends and oh, everything yeah. behind, and here they are, maybe wondering if they're ever going to see the, their family again. Wow. And Kennecott, same thing. Probably. Maybe he got to the point where he decided I never will see him, and I, and maybe his heart just quit. We don't know. Wow. So. And what about the rest of the crew? They all made it out, though, right? Yeah, they they were able to get back to uh, uh, back to San Francisco or wherever. A dollar a day. And they probably didn't even get that. My, that's an interesting story. But don't take us back to the cold. No. I don't want to go back there oh, anymore. Oh, I've got more stories. No, then. no, no. We're coming into spring, and we want to think spring, not 30 below. Okay, maybe we'll go to Arizona or Good place, Nevada, my friend. Good. Let's sweat a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs>